Well, if you would, please get a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one on the pew next to you. We're going to be right about the middle of the Bible this morning, Psalms. So if you would turn to Psalm chapter 16. You're familiar with the phrase, as we turn there, familiar with the phrase, too good to be true? Something seemingly wonderful comes along, and we think, it can't be real. No way. It's too good to be true. A car like that, for that price, it's too good to be true. That gorgeous woman over there said yes to going on a date with me? She'll probably dump me after it's over. It's too good to be true. Your husband gave you that kind of compliment and then did that for you when he got home after his hard day at work? It's too good to be true. He must want something from you. Why do we use that phrase? Too good to be true. <laughs> it's because we believe that it is impossible for something to be so good without some problem associated with it. We believe, I think, this way for two reasons. One is an experiential reason. Along the road of life, we thought that the thi that thing that had arrived in our lives which was good, which was the thing that we needed in our lives, that thing, that one thing. It had arrived, and then what happened? We got burned. It backfired. There was trouble. The car turned out to be a lemon. She doesn't really like guys that are your height. Or we found out that that man or woman turned out to be just as much a sinner as ourselves. But there's a second reason. Not just experientially that we see, ah, oh, Murphy came again, if you are familiar with that. But secondly, we believe it's impossible in a weird way. We believe secretly that there still is something that is purely good, beyond imagination, something that we internally, every time we go to do something we want, we long for. And this is the state of our world today, where there is some, where good is some unreachable thing out there, and because it's unreachable, what we need to do is protect ourselves and our group from someone else's mess. And we'll call it good enough. Too good to be true. Is, is, there, is there something that's beyond that? Something that's beyond too good to be true. Something that is so good that it has to be true. That it must be true. Because oftentimes in our world, we judge something 
by its abuse, not by the thing itself, which is a dangerous thing to do. Because there is a reality. There's a reality that there is something greater than you or I or any of our circumstances or things, something greater than any of us even together could have come up with. And it's the answer to our deepest hopes. It's the counter to our greatest and darkest fears. And it's the satisfier to our greatest longings and joys. And it's not unreachable. It's available to us. We're going to look at him today. So are you ready? Are you ready? Ah, be careful answering that. Because what we are going to look at today is going to dare you to hope. It is going to dare you to believe. It is going to dare you to rejoice. So hopefully you've gotten there. And if you have, let's stand as we read God's word this morning. Psalm chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 8 through the end of the, cha end of the chapter. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You may have a seat. We are here, as I mentioned in the beginning, we are here this morning because almost 2,000 years removed from it, a real event that flipped the world right side up occurred and shot a killer blow through the saying, it's too good to be true. The Son of God came out of the tomb. And this psalm, this prophecy, which was written almost a thousand years before Christ showed up, is telling us, is calling us to see and rejoice in the risen Christ, Jesus so what does this passage tell us? It tells us we should rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. Well, what does the reality of the resurrection give then? If we're called to rejoice in it, I want to know what's, what's in it. Well, first, the resurrection gives us the greatest confidence. Listen to what he says. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. The resurrection gives us the greatest confidence. Now, here's a question. Confidence in who? What does he say? I have set the Lord always before me. Our confidence, he says, is to be in the living God. And it's necessary to, to address this today. 
We each, every single one of us, have been given amazing abilities and gifts by the Lord God. He designed his creation to be good, to work, to do well. And, not, and even though the creation we live in is fallen and broken, there are still glimmers of the image of God that he has made each of us to be. We are to use those gifts and abilities for his glory, but here's where we need to beware the temptation. Because if there's one thing that our culture is bent on celebrating, it is bent on celebrating self-confidence. The great person in our society is the person who is self-confident, self-assured, who promotes himself or herself Feeling down? You can do this. Feeling insecure? Just get more self-confidence. Are you worried? Build your self-confidence. Feeling shaken? Follow your heart. You be you. Apart from humbling yourself before the Lord Jesus who gave you everything that truly makes you you. Here's the question for us today about this. Where in the word of God does it say that what we need in our lives is self-confidence? Where? If you could tell me, please do. If it doesn't say this, then why do we believe it? And if it says the opposite, why don't we believe that? Because this psalm is not unique in saying this. I have set the Lord before me. If it says the opposite, let's pursue that. Where does David, the writer of this psalm, and remember who David is. David is a man who was a man who would put virtually all of us in this room to shame for his courage and faith. Who in the world's eyes had every reason to claim self-confidence. Where does this amazing, courageous, faithful man put his confidence? In the Lord. The great I am. The maker of heaven and earth. The one who scripture says sets up kings and deposes them. The one who made galaxies, made your DNA. The one who has every right to judge every thought and intention of our hearts. Who caused the ground itself to open up and swallow rebellious sinners. Who rebuked David to his face for his adultery and sin, who sent his son to show you mercy on a cross. And the one who raises the dead, which is why we're here. Look at the, who the object of our confidence is supposed to be. God, the living God. But when we face this God, how can he be our confidence? There's only one way. It's through death to life. 
What does that mean for us? He can only be our confidence if we lay ourselves down. There is no confidence in God for someone who refuses to let Jesus take their sin on the cross, who refuses to receive the forgiveness that he offers. And if you have self-confidence or confidence in anything that this world has to offer, I will guarantee you, if you've not experienced it already, it will fail you. But what happens when we sinners make God our confidence, when we humble ourselves and trust Him instead of our sin and ourselves? Do we get suckered? Or do we benefit? Look at what He says next. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. What? I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So Linda mentioned it a little bit, but biblically, the right hand, this hand, <laughs> is a symbolic of strength. Power and rule. So what does that mean in this text? If the Lord is at our right hand, we have strength. We have power. We have Him who is unshakable. Anyone think we live in a time where lots of stuff is being shaken? There are things that we thought were secure as secure could be. Nope. It's like the table got flipped over. Where's our confidence then to be? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, trusting in Jesus, we have a God who because of Jesus is for us. As scripture declares in Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, I'm just going to read the whole thing. It says, where, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, that place of power, strength, and rule? Who is indeed interceding for us? And he goes on, he says, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? That sounds like a lot of shaking. As it is written, he says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things, even these awful things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, of course, confidence in God should make our heart glad. Our whole being rejoice. Rejoice. 
and our flesh dwell secure. If we have that kind of hope, what is there to fear? What is there to worry over? See, one of the great things about stuff being shaken is that it reveals the stuff that it can't be shaken. And one of the best accusations of men confident in God, it comes from the book of Acts, where this, an ancient city called Thessalonica goes full-blown riot, and the protesters are hunting down the Apostle Paul and his fellow workers, and they are crying out in the streets. They are saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, false, saying that there is another king, Jesus. True. The resurrection gives us the greatest confidence. We should rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. Well, what else does this psalm say the re resurrection gives us? Second, the resurrection gives us the greatest promise. Because he's not just glad that the Lord is always before him. His heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. His flesh also dwells secure. Because, he says, for, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. What's the promise? The promise is that death is not the end. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Here's, what, do you mean, what does he mean? Well, here's the great question. One of the huge existential questions that we have as human beings. What happens when you and I die? What happens? Do we cease to exist? Are we simply eaten by worms? Are we reincarnated? Do we become zombies? Are we made into gods who gather our Mormon wives and go populate the universe? What promise is David banking on here? You, the God in whom he has confidence, will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What's Sheol? Let's get that cleared up. Well, in the Greek, it's Hades, often called the underworld. Let's sum it all up. It's the grave. The point of this place is that it's the place of the dead, not the living. And Scripture teaches us that death came into the world because of sin. Our sin. So what he's saying is that he's glad, he rejoices, and he dwells secure because the God of his confidence promises for those who trust him that he will not treat them as their sins deserve and leave them in death. One of the goals of every Christian should be to prepare to die. It's coming. I mean, the Lord can come before that, but if He doesn't, it's coming for every single one of us. With this promise, we can prepare to die well. Because the promise is that death is not the end. But there's a second part of this promise. Because how do we know that death is not the end? 
Because the promise includes that Jesus is alive. Is alive. Look at what he says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You notice that in all these verses, he has referred to himself in the first person. And all of a sudden, he switches in the third person. And it would be quite a statement for, G for David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, to say, I'm God's Holy One. He does trust that God will deliver him from death, but how, how would David not see corruption? He doesn't. But he trusts that God will deliver him. All of humanity lives in unredeemed bodies. When we're saved, we don't suddenly get superpowers and our skin changes like to something else. That's not what happens. We still live in unredeemed bodies and those unredeemed bodies must die, the scripture says, in order to be raised to spiritual life. So how are we to understand this? So I want you to put your finger here and I want you to go over to the book of Acts. Go ahead over to the book of Acts chapter 2. Sometimes it's great that I get to explain things. Sometimes it's really great. It's even better when Scripture explains what's going on here. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. This is the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle Peter speaking to a huge crowd. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, for, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he explains it. He says, Brothers, I, say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on, the, on his throne, and you can check that out in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 31. He foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Isn't that awesome? Amen. What's the promise? Jesus is alive. Raised on the third day according to Scripture. Seen by over 500 people. And the testimony of countless men and women who banked everything on the reality that He is alive. You see, the text that we're studying this morning in the Psalms is true of Christ before it's ever true of us. Because of Him, because it is true of Him, we have hope. 
because he kept his eye fixed on his father. He was not shaken. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was not abandoned to death and did not see corruption, but was raised on the third day. Because Jesus is alive, we who trust him will be raised. That's what this psalm also says. Our tombstone is not the last stop. Amen. Here's the question. Do you believe it? It is by faith that these are received. This is the greatest promise. We should rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. What else does the reality of the resurrection give? We should have a little bit of pause. If we hope in the Lord and are raised, if death is conquered, does that mean we come back to life in a broken world? Does that mean we come back with all our aches and pains and degenerating body like we just picked up where we left off and it just... Are we raised forever to watch the sufferings of a world trying to destroy itself? No. There is good news. Look, thirdly, the resurrection gives us the greatest future. Verse 11, back in Psalm chapter 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Too good to be true? What does this reveal about the future for those who trust the risen Christ? First, it's a future that God has spoken. You make known to me the path of life. It's great news. Christianity is not just about preparing for death. It's about real living. It's about being equipped to really live. And God is the one who makes it known to those who are His. We call it revelation. Do you want to know how to live? And do you want to know the path to life? Listen to what God says. Okay, Aaron, well, where does he speak? We've had it for thousands of years. Where does he speak? Right here. And what does he say? Because this book doesn't help us at all if it's just gathering dust on the shelf. What does it say? Mark 9, verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Who is His Son? Revelation 19, verse 13 says, The name by which He is called is the Word of God. And what does His Son say? What does the Word of God say? John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. God makes known to us the path of life through His Word, the Bible, that reveals His Son, Jesus, who is risen from the dead. He is the path of life. And He has forged the path through death so that we can have life. God has spoken it. 
Secondly, it's a future of joy in God's presence. The path of life leads to life. God himself is our life. If we do not have God, if we are not born again by God in believing God, we are dead. The dead can't have fullness of joy. But those who love the Lord Jesus can, for they are brought into God's presence. And in God's presence there is fullness of joy. Do you believe this? Author and pastor Ray Orland recalled his father saying to him regularly, Listen, son, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Be all out for him. I don't care if you're a ditch digger, as long as you love the Lord with all your heart. Where is your joy, Christian? Where is it? Do you lose it in the cynicism of the weak? Come on! We serve a risen Christ. Can government beat a risen Christ? Can COVID beat a risen Christ? Can riots beat a risen Christ? In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And if you're not joyful, let this word call you to come back and be in the presence of the one who is speaking to you. Amen. This is the greatest future we are talking about. Not some half-baked utopia. This is the real deal. And thirdly, it's a future full of God's eternal pleasures. Because he doesn't stop. In your presence there is fullness of joy. That's great. But more, there's more. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember what the right hand stood for? Power, strength, rule. What does that mean? If the pleasures of God are in God's right hand, what? They can't be taken away. They're never fleeting. This is one of the great hopes of the resurrection life. We have only known the tiniest drops in the bucket of happiness and enjoyment here on earth. Every joy on this side of heaven seems mixed with sorrow or there's a sorrow soon to follow. But not in God's presence at his right hand where Jesus is forever. Don't lose sight of this future your heavenly Father has for you. Let me ask you then, if this is the future for the children of God, and it is, why do so many of us settle for lesser things here? Why do we seem to submit Jesus to everything else, to money, to sex, to the huskers? or even our children, instead of submitting our children, the huskers, sex, and money to the Lord Jesus. They're gifts from Him anyway. 
In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis made this amazing statement. He said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an infinite, ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So this passage tells us, don't be so easily pleased. Expect great things from God. Seek His greatest future. The resurrection gives us the greatest future. So what are we to do with this risen Christ? Is he too good to be true? He's too good not to be true. And he's available for you and for me. For in him we find the greatest confidence, the greatest promise, the greatest future. Chuck Colson, that name might be familiar to you. He was a politician during the Nixon administration. Yes, I know, I wasn't there. But usually the Nixon administration is marked by one thing, Watergate. A crazy scandal that got a lot of people in power in trouble. And I think rightly so. And, and Chuck Colson was part of the political team that got caught. And he spent a long time in prison. While he was in prison, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he thought about the truth of the resurrection, he said this, quote, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it, if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he says. Why did they rock in that, walk in that reality? The same reason did as the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. And he calls us to do the same. We should rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray and confess that my praise of you, my rejoicing of you seems so small for what you offer. Lord, I confess that there are more times than I ever want to admit in my life where I have been a half-hearted creature pursuing half-baked pleasures instead of seeking your face and being in your presence with pleasures forevermore. 
So please, Lord, forgive me and forgive any of my brothers and sisters here for whom that is true as well. Please revive our sights upon you, Lord Jesus, who is raised from the dead. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. So Lord, please impress this upon our hearts. Lord, if there are any here who this message hasn't been heard this way for the first time, please send it home. Make new hearts. Sanctify our hearts. Father, plan is amazing. Just amazing. We never would have thought this up. As your, as your apostle, our brother said, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in, in your name. Amen.